Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. Big news, y'all. One of my favorite Choctaw authors, Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer, has a new writing course called Fiction Writing American Indians. This course is going to show you how to discover the insight you need to write quality, authentic stories, learn practical approaches to researching Native cultures, and get answers to hard questions. I'll be taking the same course, so I invite you to take it with me. Just go to AmericanIndians.FictionCourses.com, but don't forget to use the code Choctaw, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K when you're checking out so you can get $30 off. Yep, you're welcome. Learning stuff and saving money. Let's do this. You're listening to part two of my conversation with author W. Michael Farmer about the Mescalero Apache Yellow Boy. Listeners, please be aware that today's episode does include violent content, so discretion is advised. In part one, we did a story time walking through Michael's suspenseful book, Killer of Witches, The Life and Times of Yellow Boy. And now we'll cover book two of this historical fiction trilogy that isn't just the story of Yellow Boy, it's also a view into the lives and culture of the Mescalero Apache during a time in the late 1800s when the Apache were forced to make way for the infiltrating white eyes or the non-native settlers at the time. We left off in book one with Yellow Boy determined to avenge his father and others in the tribe who had been brutally murdered by the witch Sangre del Diablo, a Mexican Comanche with a taste for spilling the blood of the Apache and trading in their scalps for Nakayi, or Mexican gold from the white eyes. And now let's take a look at Blood of the Devil, The Life and Times of Yellow Boy Mescalero Apache, book two by W. Michael Farmer. Michael, thanks for joining me once again. Did you rest up from this last episode? Well, not really, but I'm ready to go. I've (laughs) I've been writing, reading, and exercising, and doing my taxes. (laughs) Oh, you could have left out the last part. That's no fun. (laughs) Well, me too. I've been stretching and taking a run around the block, and I've got my Dr. Pepper. I'm ready to crush it today. So (laughs) tell us the background of how we know the story of Yellow Boy. Well, it's a it's a trilogy of an imagined autobiography of the Mescalero Apache warrior and Calvary Scout, Yellow Boy, who in 1950, at age 90, tells the story of his life to his physician friend, Dr. Henry Grace. The autobiography parallels the, uh, the events in the Geronimo Wars and the history of the Mescalero Apaches between uh, 1860 and 1950. All right, so book two, Blood of the Devil, begins when and where? Blood of the Devil begins in 1880 in the Sierra Madre stronghold of the great uh, Chiricahua Apache chief, Quo. Yellow Boy and his warrior brother, uh, Bila Chizzi, learn from Woe how to find the giant bald witch who has escaped them. Sangre del Diablo, blood of the devil. Uh, They have 
sworn to kill and send him blind to the happy land for the murder and scalping of their people. So the book really makes Sangre del Diablo sound really scary. Describe him to us. Well, he was he was a giant. Uh, he uh, was very big and muscular, and uh, he he uh, painted his head like a skull. Uh, he, he covered it. Uh, he was he was bald, and he covered it with uh, white paint and uh, black uh, eye makeup for the for the mouth and eyes. And his body was covered with uh, black spiral and uh, orange flame tattoos, and he was uh, he was enough to scare uh, Woe when uh, he met him on the trail one day. I bet. And he had and he had a, uh, a a big owl who did a lot of his dirty work. Hmm. So where did this witch? also, again, known as Sangre del Diablo or Blood of the Devil, go after that encounter he had and that fight with Yellow Boy? Well, he headed for uh, Casas Grandes, and on the way, he, uh, he saved a baby from slaves. Uh, he and, and uh, the two warriors that survived with him that uh, Yellow Boy had freed when they first attacked the, uh, the witch's compound. They uh, they had wiped out all but two of his men and a witch, and uh, they got away to the woman's house in, in Casas Grandes. Uh, Yellow Boy finds the house uh, and follows him toward the Great River, where the witch uh, ambushes uh, Yellow Boy and nearly kills him. But Yellow Boy manages to shoot the witch who falls in the river uh, on the Texas side and manages to crawl out and disappear on the Great Plains across the Rio Grande. Knowing the Apache he left bleeding in the sand will one day reappear. Aha. Uh -huh. So the fight, it ended without resolution, which made me just jump right into book two, of course. <laughs> so <laughs> we start off with good news as Juanita announces she's going to have a child, a baby girl, and Sonciare yellow boy's mother adopted and named lucky star so y'all may recall the story of lucky star she was the nakai or mexican slave child that had the gourd shot off of her head and she smelled like gourd <laughs> poor baby so yellow boy and the men never lost focus of killing the witch they did a sweat lodge to clear their minds and bielachesi and yellow boy were ready to hunt and kill the witch so Woe sent them a warrior to show them the way to the camp of Elias. So tell us about this warrior. Well, he was a he was a big surprise to uh, Yellow Boy and Bela Cheesy. Uh, the, the man's hair was long and red, and his skin was much lighter than Woe's. Uh, and uh, he said to them, uh, I'm called Kitsisil Liku, his hair red in Apache. And by my people, and Palo Rojo, Palo Rojo, red hair, by the Nakiyes, who were the Mexicans. Uh, he was young, uh, maybe only three years older than uh, than Yellow Boy. So, how did Kichizil Lichu, this red-haired, light-skinned man, become Wo's son? He told Yellow Boy. Uh, 
Woe took me from a stagecoach he ambushed between the villages of Messiah and Tucson. Uh, I was with my mother that day and had lived through four harvests. That's four years, the way the Apaches count time. An old man was uh, in the stagecoach with us, telling us all kinds of tales about uh, Apaches, what Apaches did to women and little children. But he died gagging and spitting blood earlier, early in the attack when an arrow flew through the window and stabbed him deep in his throat. When the stage stopped in the middle of the Llano, the dry prairie uh, road, the driver and the guard had been hit with many arrows and were slumped on the driver's seat. My mother moaned, was uh, moaning and sobbing, looking through the stagecoach window and saw the Apaches coming. She feared them more than dying and pointed a pistol to kill me, but then she shot herself in the eye instead. So I did have a question about that part. So she starts to kill him, but then she kills herself. Why did she, why did she make that decision? Because uh, she was, she was so fearful of what uh, she thought the Apaches would do to her that, that uh, she decided uh, to let the child take his chances, but she was gone. Okay, I felt like she, I thought maybe, okay, what if she's sacrificing the kid and she's like, good luck to you, but I'm out of here. So that makes yeah. more sense now. Yeah, that's okay. Got it. So then the book goes on to say how after two years of not talking due to the tragedy of the vent, he started to take on the Apache ways and basically felt like he was an Apache. You describe right. their journey on the way to the camp of Elias, and it really paints a picture of how dangerous these travels through the mountains could be. Yeah, you know, the Sierra Madre is uh, some of the roughest country in the world. And this is the way uh, Yellow Boy described that, that ride. He said, uh, my pony's hooves often landed a handspan away from the edge of forever. Uh, one little slip, one foot in the wrong place, one unexpected jerk by me or the pony at the wrong place or time and we would stumble into black, shadow-filled air or roll down steep mountain sides to be mangled beyond recognition. The Blue Mountains, which is what the Apaches called the Sierra Madre, have high, blade-sharp ridges that run side by side, north and south. And there are many uh, angry, jagged boulders that cover their sides, and the deep canyons between the ridges often have uh, uh, running steams, streams, <laughs> or deep tanks of water at their bottoms. So it sounds like one wrong step, and it could literally mean death. And oftentimes, they were traveling at night, which really made it challenging. So Kitazil Liku, rifle in the crook of his arm, stopped his pony where Elias waited for him and said, Deante, Elias. Kitsuzil Liku, son of woe, brings Mescalero friends to speak with you. Will you share your fire with us? And of course, he agrees. The book occasionally tells of the different meals they eat, which I think is interesting. In this case, the fiery pot is filled with chilies, boiled yucca leaves mixed with agarita berries, uh, potatoes and onions, which added good flavor to the meat sliced off the lunch with their knives and crunchy acorn bread. 
Uh, was this typical food for the time and area and what other types of food did they prepare? Yeah, it, it, it was typical food and they had a, they had a really uh, a marvelous pantry from the uh, uh, desert and I, items that they ate included the uh, bread made from mesquite pods, uh, baked hearts of uh, mezcal cactus. The mescaleros practically lived off of that stuff. Uh, juniper berries and meat jerky from beef or deer. That's interesting that I think any of us could read this book now. And if we were stuck in the desert, we could like try to pull from some of the memories of what we saw, because you would think desert, there's nothing to eat or drink, but these people lived out here full time, of course. So I was really interested in seeing along the way you describe the different meals that they eat. It's really cool. And it kind of makes you hungry, but they tell Elias their mission of killing Sangre del Diablo. Yellow Boy says, a warrior told Woe he heard the giant tell the Comanches to go to the camp of Elias in the Blue Mountains, where he would join them in three moons. We're looking for those Comanches, and we ask if they've come here. That's all I have to say. While I spoke, the eyes of Elias never left my face, and I looked straight into his. A voice spoke in my mind and told me not to trust him. Elias stared into a fire a few moments and slowly shook his head. No Comanches came to my camp. Stay and wait for his Comanches. You're welcome here. Oh. Anyway, so as soon as we were out of his hearing, Vila Chezi said under his breath, Elias fears the witch. He lies. He watched you the way a rattlesnake watches a rabbit. I know he fears the witch. Maybe he thinks if he provides him cover from us, the witch won't scalp him or witch his people. So we definitely don't trust Elias. You can tell he's lying. But Kitsuziliku had a plan, right? Yeah. Uh, he he smiled and said, uh, wait until the fire burns down. I'll go bush crawling to a widow I know and consider for a wife. I'll learn what happens in this camp when I lie on her blanket. So what did he learn? Had the Comanches been in Elias's camp? Well, the listeners will just have to read the book to find out. Ah, <laughs> no spoilers here, folks. So they decided to travel toward Casas Grandes, secretly following a writer from Elias's camp who they thought might lead them to the witch Sangre del Diablo. And by the way, when they rode off, that sneaky Elias had a warrior follow them to keep an eye on them. So shady. So sure enough, the writer they followed led them straight to the witch. Yeah, yellow boy says the Shina Cho, which literally means big eye, but it was actually a collapsible hand telescope. I could see past the gate and into the front of the Hacienda compound in uh, Casas Grandes, where a young Indian Mexican woman, tall and well built for having children, paced in the wall shadows with a baby in her arms. Y'all, this is the baby from book one, where near the end, the witch had taken that baby with him, and we we're all wondering, what the heck is he doing with that baby? So that night, Sangre del Diablo, on a big black stallion, rode with some warriors until just past Casas Grandes, before turning east toward the Great River, and Yellow Boy quietly went after him, but he made a mistake, and got to the top of the pass, and he realized he and his horse were in black outline against the face of the setting moon. So then what happens? The story, is, as Yellow Boy told it, was 
I heard a sound like a fist hitting a belly, but my pony shuddered, neighed in surprise, and staggered to its knees. I leaped off of his back as he fell, and I heard the thunder from the big rifle bullet that killed him echoing off the canyon walls below. The air stirred my hair as a second bullet whistled past my ear, followed by a second echoing roll of thunder. I crept over to my pony, dead before it hit the ground, even though I hid in the deep shadow and knew the witch couldn't see me. I stayed low to find protection behind my pony's back. I heard another wolf's howl and then two more before a deep roaring laugh echoed off the wide canyon walls below. A loud voice I knew well said, Apache fool, you think I don't see you following me? I have much to do and much ride now, but I'll come back for you. I'll take your hair just as I took your father's hair. Then he made his wolf howls, and they faded in the distance until I heard them no more. So now he has no horse, and he's on foot, but he's madder than ever, and he follows the witch just waiting for the right timing to take him out. So Yellow Boy said the next evening, in the dimming light, I pulled back the rifle hammer to full cock and rising to one knee, sighted on the stallion's head. The Henry roared in fire and smoke, its crack of thunder rolling to the ridge behind the water tanks and coming back to me. The top of the stallion's head exploded and the pony collapsed, its life gone in an instant. Sangre del Diablo had disappeared. For three nights and days, I followed him, drawing closer to him, looking for my chance to take him, but he carefully avoided places where I could ambush him. After trailing the witch throughout the fourth night with the Shina Acho in the early gray light, I caught a glimpse of him crossing a stretch of white sand and disappearing behind a line of mesquites. The dawn light was growing brighter. I risked going across the white sand toward the mesquites. He fired fast, emptying his rifle, his bullets raising little fountains of sand where they hit. One bullet passed through my right side. I don't think he could see me. All his other shots were wide or sailed over my head. I took cover in a low place in the sand. The firing stopped. I felt the hole in my back. I crawled to a clump of prickly pear a few yards away. I skinned a few of its pads, squeezed the juice from some on the entrance and exit bullet holes, made a bandage from my bandana, and slid a couple under the bandage over the bullet holes. After waiting to be sure the witch has left the mesquite, Yellow Boy staggers towards the river. I wiped the sweat from my eyes and looking through the cottonwood trees, saw Sangre del Diablo wading across the river. He was nearly to the far bank. Now I'll stop here because it gets super exciting here, but I want you listeners to go grab the book and read it so you can get the full effect of all the details. So what do you think listeners? Does he kill Sangre del Diablo in this ambush? The answer might surprise you. So Yellow Boy was nearly killed in his attempt at revenge and passes out. And when he comes to, he looks up to see a familiar face. Who was it? Yeah, his, his old friend and fellow warrior, Ka. Oh. You might recall in book one, he rode away to make war against the, the Enda, the White Eyes, and the Nakies. The Victorio, before the Bluecoats, came to steal the Mescalero uh, rifles and horses. He saved Yellow Boy and took him back to Huo's camp, where he began his healing from the gunshot wound. 
the people welcomed Ka back and he decided to stay with them. Then Ka decided to take on a wife, but I won't tell you who he married. You'll love it. So you'll get the book. The next chapter is called Delgadito Returns. Whoa, y'all remember Delgadito? He was the guy in book one, Killer of Witches, that always made us a little leery because he had no respect for women and he totally used Dear Woman. So one day, Yellow Boy is told that someone was riding up to camp. It was close to the time of Shortest Shadows when the struggling paint pony cleared the trail to the top of the stronghold and a weary, uh, bedraggled Del Delgadito slid from his back. Delgadito looked at the ground and shook his head. Mexican soldiers have wiped out Victorio and most of his fighting men at the place of little mountains the Mexicans call Tre Castillos. Only a few warriors scouting away from the camp and Nane, who searched for ammunition, escaped. I returned in time to see the blackbirds and coyotes feasting on many warriors gone to the happy land of the grandfathers. I came here to tell woe and to ride with him in vengeance against the Nakayes. So what did Ka say in response to this? Ka, his, his face grim, slowly shook his head. Woe isn't here. He joined Geronimo at San Carlos. We're here waiting until the Bluecoats leave the Mescalero Reservation. Stay with us. There's a teepee for you and enough food if you hunt. Delgadito thought for a while and then said, I'll stay with you through the winter and maybe go back to the reservation. Kind of interesting to have him back in the camp. So that night, Juanita said to Yellow Boy, I saw a large bird take wing this morning when I was bathing and thought for a moment it was a great owl. That's impossible, isn't it? That type of owl wouldn't show itself by day. No, it wouldn't, I said gently, and I said nothing more, but her words troubled me. The next morning, Juanita birthed their daughter, and they had named her Kicking Ran. He said, Sleepy, the camp midwife, held our beautiful dark-eyed child, its hair already thick and black in a soft blanket. She had rubbed a thin layer of grease colored with red ochre on it to protect its skin. The baby didn't cry in the cold air, but relaxed, waved its arms, and enjoyed kicking with the freedom of new life. Juanita had asked Sonciare to be the Dayan, the medicine woman who made the baby's sash, which is the cradle board. She had started work a month earlier, completing the sash the morning Kicking Rin was born and worked steadily for the next two days to complete it, singing many prayers and performing ceremonies for each part as it was finished. Why don't you read about the details of crafting this, the sash? I thought it was interesting. As Yellow Boy told it, she had many of its pieces ready before Kicking Rin was born and spent moons finding just the right materials. She sent me down to an arroyo near the stronghold entrance to collect black locusts for the frame. She knew exactly how long the pieces needed to be by measuring the length from Juanita's elbow to her fist for the middle width and using ancient rules only women knew for the frame length based on how fast babies grew before they were set free from the satch. She also had me find a piece of red cedar up on the mountain and split it into pieces for her to form the footboard, which she shaped with her knife, smoothed with sharp black flint, and glued together to be laced into the slats. 
I also had to provide her with a deer skin, and she worked for many days to make it softer than indoor cloth. Not knowing if kicking her in were a boy or a girl, she had collected both narrow leaf yucca for a girl and soto for a boy with the back slats and with a piece of the soft buckskin covered them with wild uh, rice, grass, and mustard patty. On top of the buckskin, she laced fox fur for keeping or kicking her in in the ghost face season. She cut the buckskin's outer wrap to hold the baby in place so that it laced from the right side, which was the custom if the satch was for a girl. The rainbow, the curved protective frame over the top of the child's head, she made by steaming arrowwood into semicircles and layering it as a rib on top of the other to the width of a hand uh, so together they look like a piece taken from a rough basket. Before she finished the rainbow, she called me to her teepee and uh, showed me four pieces of arrowwood she had planned to use that had unusual cracks in the grain. Uh, she probably uh, could still steam them into shape for the rainbow. They would have been weak and endangered kicking wren if the rainbow ever took a blow. So Zire, asked that I find her more arrowwood without cracks so she could make the best and strongest of rainbows. I quickly found what she needed in my supply. With the new arrowwood replacing that which was cracked, Sanziria covered the rainbow with perfectly tanned buckskin and stitched it in place with deer sinew for additional strength and to hold feathers strings of beads and little colored stones and carved animals to bring kicking her in luck and to keep her entertained while Juanita did her chores. The rainbow protected kicking her head should the satch fall. I've heard of this happening even when the satch fell from a galloping pony. The frame reinforced with leather lacings, sturdy slats, footboard, and the well-made padding was strong enough to hang from a saddle when we traveled for fast escapes or to hang on a tree where Juanita could keep an eye on it while she worked. Sancire had the satch nearly completed at the end of the second day and was painting a half moon and other symbolic decorations on the rainbow as she chanted and sang her songs for a long and productive life. For her granddaughter. I love how she sang blessings over the sash before it was given to Kicking Wren. Yeah. So the ghost face season was nearly over, and Yellow <clears throat> Boy said, I decided that with Victoria wiped out, the blue coats might leave the reservation. I spoke of with this with Juanita one night. Maybe blue coats on the reservation land have gone and taken the weak agent Russell with them. If we stay here, Kicking Wren will not know the mountains of her people, and the Naka, yes, might come to kill us as they did Victorio. So they decided to go back to the reservation, and a new agent came on board from Nebraska named Llewellyn. Before that return, Yellow Boy decided to visit Blazer and learn more about the new agent. Something I left out of the first episode was how Yellow Boy would just seem to appear out of nowhere when he'd go to see any of the white eyes. And he was Apache. He knew how to be 
stealthy and sneak up on people. So even though he wasn't trying to sneak up on them, it's just how he showed up. <laughs> and he especially was always scaring Rufus when he'd come to his place. Anyway, here's another good example of when he went to see his uh, friend Blazer. Tell us about that. Yeah, Yellow Boy says, I left my pony in the trees above the place where the Makaina, Makaina. That's a hard word uh, to say. Yeah, right. It, it means machine in Spanish. So, so wood for the Inda. When I appeared, I said, Blazer, we come back. Stay in the same canyon we stayed before. He laughed. Well, Yellow Boy, you're like magic. One minute there's nothing, and then you appear like the wind made you. My heart is glad your people have returned. Let's have a smoke and talk. Come sit with me. Blazer then goes on to warn Yellow Boy, when the agent comes, I'll let you know how to come in, and you can see him and decide for yourself if you like it. And be sure your warriors know to keep their rifles out of sight. There's still a few blue coats here to keep an eye on things, and they get nervous when they see an Apache with a rifle he's not supposed to have. So Nane's so Nane was Victorio's son-in-law, and Delgadito said that Nane did not trust the blue coats or the agent. Delgadito said he has 15 warriors with him, and they're all warm spring Apaches, not like Victoria's mix of Apaches, Navajos, and Comanches. While I was there, a handful of Mescalero uh, warriors slipped over the ridge to come and talk with him. When they left, they were excited and laughing. You know what that means. I nodded. How many Mescalero warriors do you think might go out with him? Delgadito shrugged and said, the Inda blue coats don't treat us fairly. They took Mescalero rifles and ponies without a cause. We still have many scores to settle and blood to spill. I'll go. All right, so Delgadito and Nane ask that Yellow Boy come visit with him. So Yellow Boy agrees to go with him to see Nane for a quick visit. Nane called in a loud voice. Ho, Yellow Boy, Nishii, I see you, my son. Come to my wiki up and we'll smoke. He went on to say, now I'll do my own raid. Maybe I'll die in it. We'll see. But I want only the best warriors to go out with me. I ask you to help me kill the Inda, kill the blue coats, kill the Naka, yes, kill anyone who gets in our way, and we will take anything that makes us strong and rich to the land of the blue mountains. Come with me, yellow boy. Well, yellow boy had to decline this invitation. He knew he had a new baby at home and he wanted peace. He gave his blessings for Delgadito mm -hmm. to go with Nane but also warned that he'd better not leave a trail from the reservation and to just let the Mescaleros live in peace. Yellow Boy came back to the reservation and was ready to meet the new agent. Tell us about that. The Mescaleros in, uh, in other camps had, become, had begun to call the, uh, the new agent, uh, whose name was William Henry Harrison Lou Ellen, Tata Crooked Nose. Tata means daddy or papa in uh, Spanish because he had a big crook nose and standing towered over them. He was about uh, six, six, six or so. But he showed us he was a wise man, hard, just, and fair, a man we could trust to keep his word. They went to eat with the new uh, agent and Tata Crooked Nose said, uh, Captain Brannigan is in charge of the tribal police. He wants to speak with you about being a 
tribal policeman, are you interested? I looked at Brannigan and said, a tribal policeman must cut his hair. He smiled and shook his head. No, my men don't have to cut their hair. Hmm. I keep my rifle and carry it where I go. He nodded. You keep your rifle and carry it if you like. You must wear at least the vest from the policeman clothes I give you so the other muscularos know that you stand for me and do what I ask to keep the peace on the reservation. This I can do. But you cannot be a policeman to end up. You come on the reservation unless I tell you directly to do that. If an Indi makes trouble, you find me. I'll handle it. We talked some about problems on the reservation, mainly theft of our horses in Nogal Canyon and men who made whiskey and sold it to the Mescaleros. By the way, um, I wanted to point out that I'll post some photos of some of these folks like Nane and Tata Crooked Nose and others on my native Chalk Talk Facebook page. It really makes this story come alive when you can see their photos. Yellow Boy said, Captain Brannigan was a good police chief. He told me, soldiers tell me they see young warriors disappearing over the Western mountains and not coming back. Some soldiers believe they are leaving to join Nane. You got any idea where he hides? If you can find him, we might be able to keep more young men from running off and getting themselves killed. I will look for Nane. Good. He took a long draw from his pipe and grinned. The soldiers will convince him to stay and advise the young men not to go out. The tone of Brannigan's voice told me he was Coyote, the trickster waiting, but I knew how to play Coyote's game too. What did Yellow Boy do after that? Yellow Boy said, uh, after three days riding the uh, the, the great uh, valley of the Rincomata, I rode by the canyon where uh, his wikiups, that is, Nani, stood, and I saw his wikiups empty, and he and his band gone. I judged by their tracks and the dryness of the horse apples that they had left early the night before. It was time to tell Brannigan I had found Nani's camp. Brannigan clenched his teeth and slammed his fist against the table and left the room for a short time. While I waited, Peso, one of the warriors in the room, looked at me and said, you found Nane's camp back in that little canyon on the Rinconada? I looked him in the eye and said, I did. And he was there 20 sons ago. Peso and Chonkeska, another fellow warrior, looked at each other and laughed. Peso said, for a young man, you're a pretty good scout. Come see me sometime and we'll talk over a smoke. So Yellow Boy said, all during Nane's long raid, I kept a tally of what Nane and his warriors did, and it made every warrior on the reservation proud they were Apaches. Nane killed at least 50 Inda, some say 300, but I didn't believe it, and drove off nearly 200 horses and mules before he disappeared into the land of the Nakayis. Wow, he was a tough elder warrior. Yeah, when that when that uh, happened, he was uh, about eighty years old. Uh, he had arthritic knees and club foot, uh, and he was the segundo, the number two to Victorio and his son-in-law. Uh, and he was about twenty years older than his son-in-law. That's that's how things kind of get mixed in the in the Apache lifestyle in those days. 
Right. It's estimated that during the month of his long raid, he rode as much as 70 miles a day uh, and eight companies of cavalry, uh, eight of infantry, and two of Indian scouts tried to run him down, and they couldn't do it. And the two months before he disappeared into Mexico, it's estimated that he covered about 2,000 miles. 2,000 miles. It's so impressive. One of the last of the great warriors. Y'all may recall Brannigan had told Yellow Boy that as a tribal policeman, he wasn't supposed to deal with any Inda or white men. However, Brannigan now came to him saying he needed to make an exception. Someone was stealing Mescalero horses and he needed it to stop. He said that mostly they raided horses pastured in Nogal Canyon. If I use just one shooter, the sheriff won't believe the tribal police shot them boys. If a few of them gang members gets their tails shot off, they'll turn run to the sheriff and claim the Mescalero shot them when they just rode through. So they decided to keep some horses in Nogal Canyon and suggested Yellow Boy hang out there and hunt down the thieves. And sure enough, that night he spotted some thieves and took a shot. What happened next? Yellow Boy said, I waited in the deep shadows of a big cottonwood tree, studying the trail up the canyon, trying to find the end I knew I had hit. When I was 15 yards away, I saw the rider's bare legs outlined in the trail dust and heard a gurgle each time he tried to breathe. A wave of great sadness washed over me, and a bitter taste filled my mouth. I had shot and probably killed an inmate, an Apache, brother, stealing ponies. I hated to think that I had spilled inmate blood for a few ponies. Good warriors shouldn't die like that. Even worse, it might be a boy trying to make himself a name at the wrong place and time. Keeping my rifle ready, I advanced on a shadow in the dust and came to look down at the face of Delgadito, a dark, perfectly round hole just below his right nipple and blood leaking out of it filled with bubbles. I heard the rattling and wheezing sound of air coming out of the wound as he took slow gas, waiting for the night to stay black forever. I kneeled beside him. He managed to mumble as he looked in my face. So it's you, yellow boy. I thought either the luck, uh, either the luckiest or the best marksman had killed me. I'm glad it was the best marksman. I thank Usin for an Inde friend to kill me, and not some miserable Inde with a lucky shot. He took a wheezing breath and coughed a little, blood covering his lips, pain rippling across his face. Don't look so grim, Ashashko. I draw near the happy land. It's a good night to die. His breath flew away in a long sigh and did not return. I sat down in the cold dust beside him and felt more alone than when I had found my father, Caballo Negro, scalped by Sangre del Diablo's band. Del Gadito had had a good death. I gave it to him, but I didn't want him to go. I lighted the cigar and made smoke to the four directions, asking Usin to make Del Gadito's journey to the happy land of the grandfathers a good one. 
I guessed when I read this. I mean, Delgadito was kind of a bad boy and one we all love to hate, but still so sad. The next chapter is called Good Times, and I was glad for some relief from being sad over Delgadito's passing. Yellow Boy said, uh, I, I told Brannigan what had happened with the ambush, except I didn't tell it the man I had killed was Delgadito or that I knew him. I went home to Juanita heavy-hearted. Time was moving on, and Yellow Boy stated, We had heard of the breakout at San Carlos by Woe and Geronimo, how they escaped into the Blue Mountains in the last ghost face season, only to return and stir up the people of Loco and Chihuahua at San Carlos, and lead them in a breakout that left many Inda and Nakayas dead on both sides of the border. But the Mescaleros stayed peaceful and far away from the Chiricahuas, who left a path filled with blood, smoke, and destruction. Again, this is along the lines of times changing and unrest and that push and pull of the Wide Eyes versus the Apaches and all the tribes, actually. It was the year 1883. Brannigan introduced Yellow Boy to the Blue Coat Sergeant Sweeney Jones, who said what? You probably heard last year about the breakout in San Carlos by Chihuahua, Geronimo, Woe, and them other bloodthirsty banditos. They've been raiding out of their camps in the Sierra Madre down to Mexico. Lieutenant Davis called us a white mountain Apache Chato had taken last year during the breakout. He calls himself so and says he knows where the Chiricahua camps are in the Sierra Madre and promised General Crook he'd lead us to them. General Crook's going to take a few troopers and a whole lot of scouts and either get them Apaches to come back to San Carlos or wipe them out. Mr. Al Sieber told me he wants you to come. Sarah says a special job he has in mind that you'd be perfect for with your shooting skills and all. Army pays $13 a month, gives you a uniform just like I'm wearing, two bandoliers of cartridges, a Springfield rolling block carbine, a canteen, shirt, pants, and a few other gigos that you'd probably find right handy. How about it? You want to help us with them Chiricahuas down to Mexico? I said to Sergeant Sweeney, Sweeney Jones, I go. From there, Sweeney tried to recruit other Mescaleros for the expedition, but none wanted to become a scout and work for the Blue Coats against the Chiricahua. Why was that, by the way? After the way the Army treated the Mescaleros when they invaded the reservation in 1880, most didn't want anything, no matter how tempting, to do with the Army, and they were fearful the Chiricahuas might treat them as enemies if they became scouts and help the army go after that whole dynamic of scouts <clears throat> i can't imagine those decisions they had to make or make around that again they're kind of in this middle ground where they're do they help the army and try to keep the peace around where they are do they go against other native americans it's it had to have been a difficult decision in a really weird time you talk in the book about how Sweeney Jones was a good horseman. He knew how to ride far in a day and not kill his pony by using the walk trot gallop style that Apaches had used for years when not on raids. 
on raids, they rode until their ponies were ready to drop, then stole fresh ones. I think it's an interesting method amongst the two trains of thought. They got to the army camp at Wilcox, where Yellow Boy describes, there were blue coat tents, and off to one side, fires started by distinct groups of Apaches, a few wearing blue coats. I had seen Apaches in blue coats before, including some at Fort Stanton near the reservation, but the sight of them still left a bad taste in my mouth. Again, that whole example of how things were still rapidly changing. They also met General Cook, who the Apaches called Nantan Elpa, Gray Leader. Note that the movies have this wrong and called him Nantan Lupin, Chief Grey Wolf. The Apaches don't have the word Lupin. Anyway, so they also saw Chiricahuas and White Mountain, Yuma, Mojave, and Tonto Scouts. By the time they returned from the Blue Mountains, Yellow Boy knew them all very well. So again, the purpose of this expedition was if the Chiricahua renegade stayed in the Nakayes' Blue Mountains, there'd always be trouble. He had to make them come back by talk, which he preferred, or by blood and steel, wiping them out. Nantan Elpa decided to go after the Apaches in the Blue Mountains with a few blue coats, nearly 200 Apache scouts, 50 troopers, and mule pack trains. The biggest problem Nantan Elpa faced after the Mexicans agreed to let him cross the border was finding the Chiricahua camps. Now, why did Al Sieber specifically want Yellow Boy to join in? Uh, before I answer your question, let me just insert uh, a little perspective here. Think about an army general leading four times as many Indians as he has troopers on horses. And these Indians were all on foot. They didn't ride horses. They ran all day long. And they were usually much faster than the troopers were on their, uh, on their horses because the country was so rough and they could go faster in the mountains on foot than they could on a horse. So when Yellow Boy got to, uh, got to the camp and uh, he saw Sieber, uh, Sieber told him Captain Crawford, who was one of the scout commanders, uh, has at least two or three scouts that favor the breakaway chiefs and don't want to see them have to come back. They don't know Zoe, who's a white mountain Apache scout, is guiding us to the Chiricahua camps. If they find out, they might try to kill him. Problem is, he's our only reliable guide. To be on the safe side, I think there needs to be somebody to watch his back. So Yellow Boy agreed to watch over so and off they went. Al Sieber wanted Yellow Boy to befriend so before he told him a stranger watched his back. And what better way <laughs> to gain some trust than when he saved so from a rattlesnake that was about to strike at him. He thanked Yellow Boy for saving his life. Captain Crawford and his group soon joined them. Yellow Boy said, I noticed a scowling pox-scarred face of Soldado Fierro, the sergeant who led the Chiricahua scouts to catch or destroy my little Mescalero band after we'd escaped the reservation when the blue coats came to disarm and unhorse us. I was ready to kill him when Juanita knocked him senseless with the stone from her sling. The last time I saw him, he was still in the dream world where Juanita sent him, his men carrying him back to Mescalero. He still wore his blue coat as Captain Crawford looked over his scouts, but he no longer had three yellow stripes on his sleeves. I wondered if failure to catch us and returning with a big knot on an aching head led to his loss of those yellow stripes. 
I decided to avoid any trouble with him if I could. Thanks to Juanita's skill with a sling, I don't think he ever saw me at Rufus's ranch. I asked Sweeney Jones if he knew Soldado Fierro. He said, yes, wished I didn't, but I do. Three years ago, when General Hatch tried to disarm and unhorse all the Mescaleros, a few of them sneaked off and the general sent some Chiricahua scouts under Sergeant Soldado Fierro to bring them back. When them Chiricahuas came back, old Fierro's face was black and blue and they didn't have no prisoners. He looked like somebody had cold cocked him on the side of his head with a hammer. General Hatch took his stripes away. Chato is a cousin or half brother to Soldado Fierro. I can't figure which. Word around the night fire says Soldado ain't above killing so and claiming the Chiricahuas did it if it comes down to helping Chato escape. You better stay away from him. He ain't nothing but trouble, and he has a big thirst for firewater. This was the story we talked about in the last episode, and we gave y'all a heads up that Yellow Boy would run into Soldado Fierro again, so there you go. The Apache raids had really left a mess in their wake. Tell us what Yellow Boy said about the raids in Mexico in the San Bernardino Valley. Well, you know, the, the Apaches were raiders they were kind of like pirates and uh, uh, they uh, typically when they raided would take would leave just enough for the people to get by until the next year when they would grow them some more uh, uh, corn or or whatever vegetables they had uh, yellow boy said that uh, we passed many villages abandoned because of apache raids uh, dust-filled irrigation ditches crisscross fields where crops have been grown. The crops had gone to scattered seed competing with weeds. The villages where the Nakais continued to live had dirty, black-eyed children wearing rags. And the livestock and dogs showed ribs of hunger. The droopy, sad faces of the adults filled with fear when we rode past, when we ran past. Hmm. So they traveled onward and up into the mountains where they found and Sieber directed an attack against a Chiricahua camp. Yellow Boy stated, I saw the Chiricahua camp on top of a ridge across the valley. Scouts started firing at two Chiricahua raiders. They jumped off their mules, scrambled into the brush on the far side and disappeared. Some of the scouts complained their knees hurt. They said they had to run slow behind everyone else going up the trail. So told me later that those scouts always did that. They were afraid. I would be too, by the way. No judgment. <laughs> Eventually, some women walked down a trail from the top of the mountains. One of them so immediately recognized as Geronimo's sister, Nadat's day, and led her into Crook's camp. She said to General Cook, you took white horse with Nakayi saddle with black saddlebags and silver bit and bridle. If you want Chihuahua for friend, give back to me. Her demands were met and Natan Elpa said, take it and go. Tell Chihuahua that Natan Elpa waits here for him to come and visit me as a friend. She swung up on the saddle and before disappearing on the trail back up the mountain said, I give Chihuahua the words you speak. And did she go back and give him that message? Yes, she did. Uh, the next day, Chihuahua, uh, the, the Chiricahua Apache chief, came down from the mountain on a big white horse, carrying a long spear 
and said in a loud voice as he as he rode up to a, a group of, of scouts, show me your chief. A scout pointed toward the Nantan Elpa's tent with scouts around it, and the warrior charged through them. Chihuahua rode the white horse hard right up to the tent. Nantan Lelpa came out scowling, his shirt off and suspenders hanging off the top of his pants. Chihuahua stabbed the spear into the ground beside his, his pony, dismounted and walked over to Nantan Elpa. A few days before, Soldado Fierro had killed an innocent elderly Chihuahua Chiricahua woman. So Yellow Boy heard Chihuahua say, if you want me for a friend, why did you kill that old woman? My aunt. If I tried to make friends with someone, I wouldn't raid their camp and shoot their relatives. It sounds to me like you're lying when you speak about being friends. Nantan Elpa shook his head. The attack was a mistake. I want no war. Take this sack of food and this tobacco with you. Go. Bring in your people. We'll protect them and bring you safely back to San Carlos where you'll be safe. I speak truth. You know, Soldado Fierro was hoping to gain back his stripes when he may have actually destroyed what chance they had of getting the Chiricahua to come back with them. Good job, Soldado. So the day before the warriors returned, the Chiricahua women cut up flower sacks and hung long white streamers on poles around the camp. They said it showed the warriors the soldiers didn't want to fight. When early daylight came, the women began calling to their men and chiefs, telling them they wanted to be friends with Ninten Elpa. Nadaste, sister of Geronimo, said, they call for scouts to come talk. So Yellow Boy and two other scouts went to meet with the chiefs who were near the top of the ridge, backed up by more than 30 warriors. So said, we come as friends and brothers, not to make war, but to bring you back to San Carlos. Nantan Elpa returns and makes things right at the reservations. Better you return than see your lives and families destroyed. We come to help you. You're our brothers. Take us to your fire that we can sit, smoke, and speak straight as brothers. They went to a fire, but Yellow Boy began talking to an older warrior. What went on in that conversation, Michael? Uh, the, the older warrior's mouth, nothing more than a slash. Narrowed the uh, uh, eyes, missing nothing. Walked to me. I thought he was likely, likely a chief because the other stepped out of his way. And he wore a war hat uh, covered with turkey feathers surrounding two eagle feathers in the middle on top. The warrior stared at me long enough that I considered him rude and wondered if he wanted to fight. He finally said, I've never seen you. You're Mascalero. Why do you, whose people have no belly to fight the Enda and blue coats, come to our strongholds? with these dogs on old and an old worn-out rifle. Do you want an early start to the happy land? I returned his rude look, looking him straight in the eyes, and said, I'm Yellow Boy. The blue coat chief of scouts asked me to come because I hit where I shoot. A crooked smile filled his lips. I hit where I shoot too, Mescalero. 
Perhaps the Blue Coat Chief of Staff, Chief of Scouts, will pay me to ch chase myself in the Blue Mountains. The warrior standing behind him grinned. Come to my fire and we'll talk. We want to learn why you come to attack us when we've done nothing to you. He turned toward the fire. I didn't move. I'll come to your fire when I know who speaks and shows no respect to a stranger. He stopped and looked over his shoulder at me. The Nakiese call me Geronimo. I'm a Diane of the Bedenkoi Nene Apaches. Oh my gosh, it's Geronimo. <laughs> at this point when I was reading, I didn't know if he would really be part of the series or not. Um, so that this was a really exciting part to me. It's like, it's Geronimo. So by the way, listeners, check out season three, episode eight, to hear about the life of Geronimo and the books that uh, Michael has uh, written about him. And to learn about what Yellow Boy and Geronimo talked about, you'll just have to read the book. So after much discussion, the Chiricahuas came down to the camp and they had a peaceful evening. Al Sieber told Yellow Boy, I have no reason not to trust Soldado Fierro. If you want to watch him close, especially around so, I nodded. Now hear me, I do not trust Geronimo. Did the Chiricahua decide to follow them to the reservation? Uh, early the next day, Geronimo and the Chiricahua chiefs told that Nantan Elpa, their people wouldn't answer their smoke signals to come in because they thought the scouts tried to fool them. So Nantan Elpa let them go try to find their followers but told them he marched for San Carlos in three days and to meet him at the mouth of Guadalupe Canyon, which is right on the border. I watched and helped Zoe for the next two days. He was everywhere, spending time with the Chiricahuas and doing his work as a scout sergeant. It seemed that where Zoe was, there was Soldado Fierro, always within sight, given what Nane and Sieber told me, like Coyote, I watched and waited. Like Coyote, he's on it. So the next morning, Zoe went hunting without Yellow Boy's knowledge, so he rushed to catch up to him, afraid that Soldado Fierro would be after him. He quickly noted that there was a set of tracks following Zoe's. Listeners, do you think Soldado Fierro caught up with Zoe and killed him? And did the Chiricahuas gather the rest of the tribe and meet Nantan Elpa in Guadalupe Canyon to travel to the reservation? I guess you'll just have to read the book to find out. <laughs> They're going to hate me, Michael. So on the march out of the Blue Mountains with the Chiricahuas, Yellow Boy finds the hacienda of the witch Sangre del Diablo. Yellow Boy returns to Mescalero, meets with three friends who will help him attack the witch's hacienda. This is the third time Yellow Boy tries to avenge Sangre del Diablo's murder and scalping of his people, and including his father. So will he be successful, or will the witch escape him? You'll find the answers in the book. So when Yellow Boy and his friends return to the Mescalero Reservation, Yellow Boy goes to see Captain Brennigan, who asks him, you ever had any dealings with the Hickoria? The little basket people who live in the mountains to the north? Yes, I know them some. The government has decided to combine the Mescalero and Hickoria agencies, and the Hickoria are moving down here rather than the Mescaleros moving north. 
I'm not going to mix Hickory in with my Mescalero tribal policemen. So you boys is going to have to handle enforcing the reservation law for both tribes. They're starting on their way here just about today. Over 700 of them. I didn't like what he had just told me. The reservation land belonged to the Mescalero. There would be many confrontations between the tribes over where and how often to hunt. Fights and killings over gambling wagers and competition for women. This was such a mess of time when various tribes, even warring tribes, were being forced to move and to live in unfamiliar areas near each other. I can't even imagine how challenging this was during this time. So Ka talked to Yellow Boy and Bila Chesi about the Hickoria, and what did he say? Ka said, I rode with Victorio and listened to the stories the Membranos told of the Hickoria. They said the Hickoria believed their god, Monster Slayer, told them long ago in the time of the grandfathers that they must live in the northern mountains or be lost. There they live and hunt. They never think, like the Mescalero, about driving the game away or wiping them out by taking too many. They never learned the lesson of the Enda fur trappers in the high north mountains who wiped out Beaver's trade, tribe, or how the Enda made the buffalo vanish. I also remember my father telling me that in the days before the Bosque Redondo, the Hickoria rode with the Navajo and Utes on raids against the Enda and others. My father did not like them at all. Hmm. So it turns out the Hickoria didn't like this idea of Mescarello tribal police being over them either. So on the other hand, the Mescalero didn't like that the Hickoria would be given cattle to start their own herd when they weren't even given the same opportunity. So trouble is a brewing, and to top it all off, there were rumors all over the reservation that a witch, one with shape-shifting powers, had come and walked unnoticed among both Hickoria and Mescalero. Brannigan was smart enough about Apache nature that he told us to keep a close eye out for any indication that might point to someone about to be charged as a shapeshifter by Diane's back in the camp scattered all over the reservation. Good news came about, though, that Tata Crooked Nose would buy 500 head of cattle, half to go to the Hickoria, half to the Mescalero. He even registered the tribes as part of the Lincoln County Cattle Growers Association. What did the Apache think about cattle? So the, the problem was that uh, Tata Crooked Nose had originally was originally only going to give the Hickoria the cattle. And then he had a lot of long talks with the leaders and the Mescaleros. And he bought uh, twice as many as he thought and divided them equally between them. Oh. The, the, the Apaches thought of ponies, horses, as something valuable. Uh, it was a tool to, to care for. But most saw cows as food. And frustrations still continued to bubble up despite every everyone getting cattle. And uh, uh, the fact was that they, they, a lot of them just ate the cows and didn't uh, didn't try to start a herd. Yellow Boy stated that uh, Captain Brannigan motioned me into his office one morning and said, a game of Monty went bad last night. A hickorya named Red Pony claimed the one who ran the game, a Mescalero uh, old 
he who catches horses refused to give him the pony he had won in a big bet. He who catches horses claimed Red Pony never made the bet. Red Pony came back with two other hickorias and kept their rifles on the other players. Red Pony beat and then cut the old man up pretty good. He took the pony he claimed he had won and claimed an extra one for his trouble. The Mescaleros in nearby camps gambling with the Hickoria want to wipe out Red Pony's camp and any others that get in the way. I told them I'd take care of it properly and they'd damn well better leave the Hickoria alone. I checked this morning, Red Pony ain't in his camp on the Rio Tularosa, but his woman and children still have their teepee there. He's likely planning to hide out in the mountains he knows and dares to come after him. Catch Red Pony and bring him back here. If you have to kill him, do it. Yellow Boy answered, I go. By and by, I come back with Red Pony. Then what happened? Well, you just have to read the book and find out. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, Yellow Boy said that year, late in the season of Earth is reddish brown. Tata Crooked Nose called all the chiefs and tribal police together and told us he would not be an agent anymore. I thought then and still believed Tata Crooked Nose was one of the best agents we had had in all years I lived on the reservation. It makes sense that the agents could make or break life on the reservation. It it must have been a big deal to learn a new agent was coming on board and dreading what to expect next. And sure enough, the Mescaleros didn't like the new agent named Cowart. And by the way, Captain Brannigan also had left. So why didn't they like Agent Cowart? Uh, Cowart tried to make the men work in the fields when they didn't want to by cutting off their rations. Mm. Fathers who didn't want their children in the Inda schools hid them or sent them to the mountains. The coward sent the tribal police after them to make them go. Yellow Boy had to do this once, and it was a job he didn't want or like and promised himself he wouldn't be a policeman if he had to do it again. Yeah, such a sad issue for many years among our native people. Yeah. Yellow Boy talked about his daughter and said, Kicking Wren asked me to make many of the things girl children ask of their fathers. I carved her more dolls so she had a family, a warrior, his woman, and their children. I cut a piece of feed bag cloth so she could wrap it around little lodge poles she cut from arrowwood to make a teepee for her doll family. I asked her, Kicking Wren, what will you give your man for his evening meal tonight? She would grin shyly and whisper, don't tell him, father. It's a surprise. I have mesquite bread, roast deer, beans, and potatoes. Then we will have a big circle dance. I soon learned her menu was usually the same as Juanita's. One day I noticed she didn't have the father doll I had made her, and her baby was wrapped warmly in a moss bed she had made. As I smoothed and straightened an arrow shaft, I said, Ren, is your man gone off hunting today? Do you need meat? She looked at the teepee floor and slowly shook her head. My man goes to bring a Diane. Our baby is sick. It's too hot. I dreamed she was sick. I dreamed she went to the happy land before my man came with a Diane. I put aside my arrow work and went through the motions of a Diane seeing for someone with fever. I chanted and sang, but used unintelligible words as I made up the ceremony. When I finished chanting over the doll, I gave it back to Kicking Ran and said, 
Daughter, your baby is sick no more. Her laughter of delight lit up the teepee. A few days later, Yellow Boy headed into the teepee where Juanita told him to look at a mysterious carved wooden figure. He said, I picked it up and looked at it in the firelight and wavering shadows. My hand trembled when I realized it was an owl. My people believe live owls carried the ghosts of evil men. I threw the carving in the fire and watched it flare up and quickly burn with a bright yellow and orange flame. I waited until it burned no more and broke its cinder apart until there was nothing at all left of it. I said to them, where did you find this? I was playing with the others in the pine straw under the tall trees, and we found a warrior watching us play. He sat leaning against one of the trees that stood away from the others. Who was it? I don't know. I've never seen him before. What did he want? What did he say? He said, who is the child of killer of witches? I said, I am. He's a great warrior. He smiled and said, I have a gift for you. He reached in his medicine bag, pulled out that carving and gave it to me. He said it was for my dolls to have because you carved them for me and he had carved this for me to go with them. I stroked her face gently and explained, owls are where the ghosts of dead bad men go. The owl brings news of death. He is saying he plans to witch us by giving you the symbol of his evil. Tell me what the warrior looked like who gave this to you. Kicking Wren said he was wrapped in a black blanket. He had the skin of a cougar across his shoulders and his bow case and arrow quiver were made from cougar hide too. There were three long scars side by side on top of his left hand that ended on his fingers. His hair was long and gray like Bilicesi's and he wore it in braids. That is all I remember of him, father. About this time, a, a cougar had started killing livestock. Agent Cowart asked Chief Notzilli to send out his best hunter to take the cougar. No one went because Notzilli's Diane had told the people that the cougar formed from a shapeshifter who could only die by the hands of a killer of witches. The story is so creepy and it had me sitting on the edge of my seat, but dear listeners, you'll have to read the book to find out who or what the shapeshifter was. But I will say this, this creature was successful in making kicking Wren very ill. Now something else happened along the way. Yellow boy took a second wife and you'll be surprised who he took to be that second wife. Listeners, you know how yellow boy had a dream and that dream ultimately led him to finding his power well, now he had another dream. Tell us about that dream, Michael. Yellow Boy described the dream saying, I became an eagle soaring on great wings high over the mountain above me. I swooped down close to a road and rising high again, saw a wagon driven by an Inda and beside him a young boy wrapped in a hooded blanket. Leading the wagon toward the pass, three vaqueros rode far ahead. I circled the wagon and vaqueros two or three times, and then a strong wind caught and lifted me higher and higher into the sky, making the wagon and the riders disappear. And a voice came saying, the Indah boy comes. You have power. Be ready. And now, my friends, we have reached the end of this episode and the end of book two, Blood of the Devil. Stay tuned for the next episode where we'll fulfill this trilogy with the third book, The Last Warrior by W. Michael Farmer. Michael, thanks again, and we'll see you in part three. 
Thank you, Rachel. See you then. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.